Right now on Matter of Fact, this woman was laid off in the pandemic, so she applied for government assistance. You have to finish verifying your face of recognition to get through. I'm not doing that. An AI technology pioneer explains the risks of making our faces the final frontier of privacy. We really have to think what does it look like when there's this mass surveillance capability in place. Plus, Americans owe nearly $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, and borrowers are struggling to pay it back. How do I, in good faith, tell students to go to school if they're going to take out this kind of debt? as an 18-year-old. What can be done about the rising cost of getting a college degree? But first, the nation reacts to a leaked Supreme Court draft decision threatening abortion rights. What's ahead for the court and the country? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Two Supreme Court decisions that gave American women the right to have an abortion now hang in the balance. Earlier this week, Politico published excerpts of a draft opinion showing the majority of the justices voting to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood, a draft that the Supreme Court says is not final. Chief Justice John Roberts calls the leak a betrayal. The draft is reportedly from February. As part of the court's process, draft opinions are circulated and debate among the justices continues until the June recess. Opinions aren't final until they're officially released. A leak like this is highly irregular. If the draft holds as a decision, it will have a seismic impact. For more on this, I'm joined by Amy Howe. She's a legal expert and co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. She's been following this case and others in real time. Amy, always nice to talk to you. So this Mississippi case was argued in December. So it seems that we know that this leak is the real deal and it's a leaked majority opinion uh, by Justice Alito. Give us in a nutshell what it says. It says essentially that there is nothing in the Constitution about a right to an abortion, that there is no history of there being a right to an abortion, and that the Supreme Court, when it held that there was a constitutional right to an abortion in Roe versus Wade, and then again in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, was wrong. And so it's okay to overrule those decisions. And so Justice Alito said, abortion is a moral issue about which people can differ, but it's essentially not a constitutional issue and it should go back to the states and the people and their elected representatives can decide whether or not abortion should be available. So it's settled law unless some people think it's not so settled and then in fact they can just turn overturn it. Yeah, so it was a 67 page decision, which even by Supreme Court blockbuster standards is really long. You know, Justice Alito clearly is walking through the entire history of abortion in colonial era and then in the United States, and then walking through explaining why he thought it was acceptable to overrule Roe and Casey, talking about Roe and Casey being wrong when they were decided about the test that Casey established, whether or not there is an undue burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion. So you've listened to those arguments. Are you surprised when you see what's been written as, as opposed to what you'd been hearing? I was really not that surprised by the substance 
of the decision. It was clear after that argument that there were definitely three votes to overrule Roe and Casey, Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Samuel Alito. The Chief Justice John Roberts wanted was talking about an alternative ground that would have left Roe and Casey in place formally, wouldn't have formally overruled them, but still would have upheld the Mississippi law. And so the question was, what were Amy Coney Barrett, the, the court's newest justice, and Neil Gorsuch going to do? The leak, obviously, is a huge surprise. Any thoughts on that? It's impossible to say. It could be uh, perhaps a clerk from a liberal justice who wants to, to stir up outrage at the court's decision. It could be a conservative clerk to a conservative justice who is trying, is worried that maybe one of the conservative justices, one of the five in the majority, is getting a little squishy. Could you, legally speaking, have a country where abortion is legal in half the states and, and not legal? I mean, what does that set up, legally speaking, down the road? I think that there are you know, something like 23 states that would likely ban abortion or, or severely restrict abortion if Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were overruled. Another 20 or so that have state have laws that would keep abortion legal. There were a handful, maybe seven or so, that are gray, where it's not quite certain what they what they would do. And so that is an entirely plausible scenario. Amy Howe with SCOTUS Blog, thank you, as always, for your tremendous insight. I always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Next on Matter of Fact, should your face be used to prove your identity? It's one thing to unlock your phone that you choose to do. It's another thing if the government requires you to submit your face to have access to basic services. This expert explains the risks of using AI in everyday life. And still ahead, it's one of the biggest decisions students make. How many of you think you're going to go to college some point in your life? How do we educate them about the kind of debt going to college can create? The world of artificial intelligence, or AI, was once the world of science fiction, but now most of us think of it as a routinely used tool for police and security firms. And in fact, the use of AI with facial recognition monitoring is far more extensive. Well now, government agencies are using that same technology to verify the identity of people who are applying for assistance. Everything from social security to veterans benefits, from unemployment benefits to tax claims. Technology usually through a third party vendor. But the widespread use is raising questions for citizens about privacy rights and civil liberties. So my name is Tamika Green, and I live here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been here for the last 10 years. I worked at CRVA, which is covered underneath the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And we found out, by the way, of email that, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, that we would be closed, but we didn't have a time frame. So we were able to get severance pay, but they told us to apply for unemployment on top of that to continue to be able to, you know, receive benefits, take care of the household. So when it first happened, the first couple of days, the process was very easy. I would actually go onto the site, I would have to log in, put in my username and my password, and then I would have to do a third-party identification, which they'll send a passcode either to my phone or by email of choice. And when you answer the questions, within the next couple of days, your benefits was in your account. I don't really get sick, but I knew something was wrong because just 
the way I was feeling. I was faint. I was weak. I was nauseous. And my heart was beating through the roof. So when I was in the hospital going through everything, I was still unemployed. And at that time, HR was like, we have to get medical clearance. You cannot come back. So I'm still qualified for benefits. So when I tried to go recertify, once again, I logged on to the website, I put in my username and my password, and then the ID me came up and I'm like, okay, what is this? Let me click on it and see what happens. It asks you to load a driver's license, identification, a passport, or anything that verifies that it's you and your address. I'm like, okay. So I don't know where this information is going, there's a scan that comes up to scan your face, to take an actual selfie. Nope. Close the laptop. I, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what this is. I don't know if this is safe. I, I did not feel safe. Joy Bulamwini is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts recently to talk with her at the Media Lab at MIT. It seems to me that facial recognition is more ensconced in our day-to-day -day lives and not less ensconced. So we've certainly seen an increase in the use of facial recognition technologies, but we've also seen major companies back away. So for example, IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft, they have stepped away from the technology in some capacity. And Facebook also did what I call a face purge, where they deleted the face prints of many users. And at the same time, we've also seen uh, increase in use in some cases, such as we've seen with the IRS adopting IDME for access to certain services. So it's been a combination. It's an ongoing dance right now. You called it the coded gaze when we spoke the last time. Refresh for everybody some of the issues around AI. Because listen, nowadays we, we use our faces to open our phones, and I think people are getting very used to the idea of, sure, use your face to access information. Why not? Yes, yeah, so the notion of the coded gaze is really about power and who has the power to shape the preferences, the priorities of the technologies that we create and also some of the prejudices as well. And so to your point, when it becomes normalized, right, that the face is an access code, you can trade convenience right, for some really uh, insidious things that could be happening. So I do think we definitely have to think about the types of technologies we're using and whether it's what we want in society and the use case. So it's one thing to unlock your phone that you choose to do. It's another thing if the government requires you to submit your face to have access to basic services. So what's the risk there? How often does AI get it wrong and, and who do they get it wrong for? Well, it really depends on the system that you're looking at. In 2019, for example, the government agency, uh, National Institute for Standards and Technology, looked at this question when it came to facial recognition algorithms. What they found was that for African-American faces and also Asian faces, as compared to Caucasian faces, the differences were 10 to 100 times wow. when it came to false positives, depending on the algorithm you were looking at. Is the the goal ultimately, let's make facial recognition perfect. Let's make it flawless. So even if we had flawless facial recognition, right, now you could be tracked everywhere you go where your face is visible unknown to you. We really have to think what does it look like 
when there's this mass surveillance capability in place. So perfect facial recognition can still be abused. What is oftentimes sold in terms of how it's marketed is this is going to increase efficiency, right? Or this is going to reduce fraud, reduce crime. And so legitimate concerns that enable you to then market a very uh, dangerous technology. So my main focus is how do we stop the harmful use of facial recognition technologies? The face doesn't become the final frontier for privacy. Dr. Joy Bulamwini, nice to see you. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Joy Bulamwini is just one of our guests who's going to join us for the upcoming Matter of Fact listening tour, Trailblazers, Troublemakers, and Dreams. Please join us for this live-streamed special event on Wednesday, June 8th at matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, this Pennsylvania state representative is still paying for her college education. We're going to be digging out of this debt problem for years and years and years. What she's doing to reduce student loan debt for future generations. And later, art as protest. How this artist's display caught the attention of policymakers. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. In the next few weeks, the Biden administration is expected to announce a plan for cancellation of student debt. Americans owe nearly $1.75 trillion dollars in outstanding student loans, 92% of which is owed to the federal government. With student loan payments on hold till August 31st, anxiety is rising for borrowers. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, takes us to Pennsylvania, where many are worried that their debt is going to follow them for life. 29-year-old Carlos Aponte riding his bike the 15 miles round trip to work to save money. It's a better story, right? The Philadelphia high school history teacher is in debt and has been since he graduated from Temple University seven years ago. Oh, it's the biggest regret of my life. <laughs> yeah, definitely is. It's $192 a month is the minimum payment. Aponte's student loan debt, though, no laughing matter. The first in his family to go to college, he applied for $50,000 in federal and private loans. The vocabulary was all foreign to me. Uh, variable rates, fixed rates, Stafford loans, Stafford plus loan, parent plus loan. I really didn't know what any of it meant. I just thought I was going to go be of service to other people and everything will work out because I'm trying to do the right thing. It's either save or make some changes. Jennifer O'Mara, also the first in her family to go to college, took out $36,000 in federal loans to get her undergraduate and master's degrees. Her husband, Brad, is a disabled veteran. So until recently, the 29-year-old was working three jobs at a nonprofit, a pizza restaurant, and cleaning homes. I have a story to tell you. Then things changed. O'Mara ran for a seat on the Pennsylvania State Legislature and won, becoming the youngest female Democrat to get elected. She's making student loan debt priority number one. It's a really stressful situation. You thought you were doing everything right, and now here you are. You have your degree, you have a good job, or so you think, and you still can't get ahead. There's many choices and opportunities for everybody out there. O'Mara enlisted the help of another millennial freshman representative, Republican Megan Schroeder. They've created the Student Debt Caucus. Everybody seems to have a story about this. So that means it impacts all of us and we need to do something about it. The state reps say they're focusing on predatory lending, 
college tuition costs and transparency, and how to improve financial literacy for young people. Letting students know, okay, if this is the field you want to go into and this is your, your major, this is probably some of the job opportunities and this is what they make. We're going to be digging out of this debt problem for years and years and years. And I don't know how I'm going to look my kids in the face and tell them that they need to now go to college and do the same thing that I just did. How do I, how do I set them down that same path? How many of you think you're going to go to college some point in your life? Carlos Oponte feels the same pressure when it comes to his students. How do I in good faith tell students to go to school if they're going to take out this kind of debt as an 18 year old? This is the biggest decision financially you're going to make almost in your life and you have to make it at 18 years old. Yeah, I think the tree's trying to fight back. He's still passionate though about making a difference, taking his students out to volunteer in local neighborhoods hoping to pass on the life lessons he learned the hard way. In Philadelphia, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Coming up on Matter of Fact. Parents are spending between 10 and 20% of their income on childcare. How the state of New Mexico plans to make childcare available and free. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Childcare is one of the biggest household expenses for families, according to a 2019 survey by Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families. Parents are spending between 10 and 20 percent of their income on childcare. In New Mexico, the average cost of childcare is about $8,600 a year. As of this month, the state has a no-cost option. Families earning up to $111,000 a year for a family of four will be able to send their children to daycare and preschool programs for free. How? Well, the state is eliminating co-pays for the child care assistance program. About 30,000 households are expected to benefit from the initiative, which runs through June 30th of next year. Ahead on Matter of Fact, an artist turned activist used this statement piece to protest the representation of a black man used for target practice. I am coming to you with some good news. She'll update us on the change it created. we have an update to a story we shared just last month. We told you about Oakland artist Tracy Brown. She spotted a shooting target dummy that resembled a black man for sale on the General Services Administration's website. Well, she turned one of those dummies into an art piece as an act of protest, then added the names of dozens of people who'd been killed by police violence to the wing feathers. Because of the petition that Tracy started, the GSA has announced they're removing the dummy from their catalog. But Tracy says the removal is just the first step. The GSA and all federal purchasing bodies cancel any contract and not transfer any more of them to the police or military agencies. The dummy will no longer be for sale after May 28th. That's it for this episode of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.